This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Modern life is all about choice. It's the basis of capitalism. It's the promise of a democratic society. But how do our brains make those choices? And do they do it rationally? It's a theme I look at in the final episode of the Podmasters series Jam Tomorrow that I'm presenting. And it's one of the interests of Moran Cerf, who's a professor of neuroscience and business at the Kellogg School of Management. Welcome to the bunker, Moran. <laughs> Thank you. You've recently been analysing how people react if they're asked to make the most terrible and consequential choice of all. Because a few men, most of them elderly in this world, have the power to destroy large swathes of the world by launching nuclear weapons. And you did an experiment setting up people to to follow that decision-making process. Tell us how that went and what you did. Sure. So as you said, there are only a handful of people in the world who will get to make this decision. And we wanted to see if A, those people are capable of making a good decision under the conditions that are required, and B, if not, if we can help them somehow do better. So the answer to the first one is that for most people, uh, when they're under stress, under time pressure, the conditions that uh, are ambiguous with regards to the information, they make terrible choices. You alluded to the fact that we're irrational. This irrationality is exacerbated when we're under all those kind of impossible conditions. And what we learned in a series of experiments is that we can actually nudge people to make bad decisions just by creating more noise in the experiment. We can give you too many options that are invalid and you will make a wrong choice. We can increase the stress on time pressure and you'll make the wrong choices. And the wrong choices are collectively wrong because people will say that they're wrong, but also you yourself. After the experiment is over, when we tell you what the options were and what you did, you say, oh my God, I would have made the opposite choice. And then step two, we try to help them make better. So let's just recap the choice you were asking them to make. Hundreds of nuclear missiles have been aimed at you and you had to decide whether to respond. Exactly. So the simplest experiment, we had a few versions, but the simplest one is you're playing the president. So it's a simulation. And we're telling you that there might be 300 missiles coming from maybe North Korea or maybe it's China. And they're maybe going to be here in uh, 20 minutes, and they're maybe going to hit this place, and a lot of maybes, and the sets of options that you have are respond this way, respond this way, don't respond, and so on. And what we see, basically, is that everyone chooses the worst option, which is usually to respond without information and attack some potentially innocent country just to make sure that they're not making a mistake. So they did actually choose to act, and they they found it hard not to make a decision. They found it hard to decide not to engage. Exactly. And we can calibrate that. So if I give you, I'll give you a concrete example. If I give you uh, nine options that are all a response in different levels of uh, kind of severity, and one, the 10th one, is don't do anything. You're much more likely to do something. 
if I give you nine options that are various levels of don't do anything, negotiate, diplomacy, and only one option to do something, you're much more likely to not do anything. So we're just showing that we can take a very serious person who spent a lot of time planning for that and just by how we present the options, make them attack another country with a nuclear weapon or not. So we know that time pressure is really bad when it comes to making decisions. Um, What else is bad? All the psychological conditions that you can imagine that affect humans are bad. So being tired, being hungry, being emotionally distressed from not just the case itself, but if your spouse upset you that morning, you might actually leak into the decision making. Uh, We know that ambiguity, maybe most of all, is uh, really terrible for us. So if I tell you that it's maybe and maybe and not sure and uh, it's, it's out. And just to be clear, this is true not just for nuclear choices. This is true for Almost every choice in our life, if you are uh, pregnant and I'm telling you that there's X percentage that you're going to have this problem and Y percent you're going to have this problem, it's a lot more difficult than if I told you something with certainty. I give you just a few. The list is really long. Uh, Who speaks in what order makes a big difference. So if you hear a senior person saying, I'm definitely thinking we should do A and you're much more junior than them, you're much more likely to accept what they said out of basically hierarchy. So the older way which people speak impacts our decision-making, our sense of hierarchy. And I can go on and on. Every psychological dimension that you can imagine impacts those choices. Are our brains ill-equipped to make these kinds of decisions? Because I was wondering whether there was an evolutionary angle to this, given that only a few thousand years ago, there is no way that a human would ever have to make the decision of whether to destroy thousands of other people in one go. Do we struggle because our brains have not caught up with the changes in our societies? Absolutely. Our brains are still the brains of a a human who lived in a savannah with about 200 people around him or her and with very few options that are going to impact their lives. And this is what our brain is good for. In the last 100,000 years, we developed some capabilities that allow us to do better, but the world's advancing much faster than 100,000 years. We have way too many options, we have too many variables, and our brains are incapable of really taking all of those into account. I would say that this, just to make it clear for the audience, is not just true when it comes to nuclear. It's true when you go to a restaurant. You might tell yourself, I'm going to diet and I don't want to have too many carbs and I don't want to have fibers and so on. And then you have dozens of options and there are too many dimensions to these options you most likely are going to choose in a restaurant something that's not good for you health-wise, even though you were the person who said just an hour before, today I'm going to eat healthy. And that's just a minuscule example of the amount of things you have to do every day, food and health uh, and gym and interactions with people and career choices. And then you go to the big ones, which is who to marry, uh, when to have a kid, where to live, and whether to launch Venezuela or not. We sometimes think that artificial intelligence might be able to help us make those difficult decisions more easily. And that is already creeping into some domains, things like the military, for example, where AI can can inform you as to whether it's right to launch a missile and where to aim it. Is that a danger that we should avoid falling into? Tough topic, but we've explored it extensively. So I'll tell you uh, in maybe two minutes the entire journey. So yes, humans are terrible and we do have tools like AI that can do better in being more rational. We already have evidence that they're better than us in a lot of things that we thought just years ago are humans alone. They're already better drivers than us. So self-driving cars already would make a lot less accidents if they were allowed in the streets. In some domains, they're better than our doctors. 
radiologists uh, usually lose to AI when it comes to analyzing uh, pictures that have cancers in them. And there are other domains that they start winning that we thought they would never win, which is advertisements. Last year, they, uh, an AI had the best creative uh, ad set proposal. So they're starting to do better, which in theory would make humans prefer them when they go see a doctor, drive a car, or uh, choose a creative agency. But we don't. We constantly choose humans. In a study that was done by a colleague of mine, they basically told people, you're supposed to be diagnosed by an entity. Before you choose whether it should be a human or a machine, they should tell you that humans make mistakes about 80% of the time and machines only 30 So on numbers, machines are much better. And most people still choose humans. And they play with the numbers. They made it even more extreme. And people kept choosing humans. And when they asked them, why? Why do you choose humans even though we tell you that the probability of a mistake is much higher with humans? Everyone gave the same answer. I am the 1%. I'm unique. Yeah, for others, uh, the probabilities, but I'm so unique. My complexity is that my cough is different than your cough and my fever is different. I need a human who can understand me. And this potential fallacy is what makes us always prefer humans in critical choices. Now, when we learned that, we said, okay, there's no point exploring further whether AI could be useful or not in actually making the choice. But what we can do is use AI as an aid. And that's something that is actually very powerful. So the simplest example that's going to be a little bit too simplified, but will make the point is we can take the president, let's say Biden in the US, and have him, the person himself, train an AI to think like him in the most rational and stable state so that in a few weeks, when there actually is a situation where he is needed to be in his most rational state, he can consult his version in a box that could give him some insights. And it would still be a human. It would still be him deciding, but it will give him some intuition as to what a machine thinks he would have done two weeks ago when he was in a different state. And that's the closest we got to having AI help because I think most people have seen the movie Terminator and they know that uh, AI deciding could be catastrophic. But is it possible to program an AI to make choices that ultimately have huge ethical, moral dimensions in that way? Because one of the things, discussions that has, has come up over the past few weeks with chat GPT and so on is how very amoral AI is. So how is it really possible to program it in that way? So the answer is no, but it's even more impossible to program humans to do that. So <laughs> so it, it's, it's terrible because all the entities in the game are terrible at that. And the question is, if one is really terrible and one is really, really terrible, do you go with a really terrible or with a really, really terrible? And I think that in that sense, we're playing a dangerous game because we can prove that humans are not good. And everyone knows that AI is potentially even worse or even better depends on who trains it. And I think that right now we're caught in a situation that we have no good option. Uh, So the solution we come up with is at least put more humans So maybe the average of them collectively will do better than just one person. It feels a bit like the trolley problem, doesn't it? You know, the the infamous problem where you you have to decide whether to let people uh, die or do do something that would kill people directly, but fewer people in the end would die. It's a trolley problem on steroids because, first of all, it's real. Trolley problem was a philosophical idea that people played with and now we're actually dealing with that. And also it's uh, in a much higher uh, scale. So the trolley problem was five people versus one person. Now we're talking millions here or millions there. And all we learned from the trolley problem is that humans are terrible at that. That's one. And also that they're not consistent. So if you play the trolley problem, and some colleagues of mine have tried it with the same people 
day after day, you can entirely change the outcomes. So we can't even take a person and say, okay, this is what people think and we should train machines based on that. People change their minds. People change their mind also geographically. Uh, the, the famous study on the trolley problem that was done across the entire globe showed that uh, in Western countries, people prefer to save a successful rich white man. You know, if he's a doctor and he's uh, crossing the street illegally, you still want to save him and kill a few uh, other people. Whereas in Asia, I think if I'm not mistaken, people preferred to save the elderly. And just this means that even if you try to take those really difficult choices and put them into an equation, you will end up with an equation that changes definitely with every president, definitely within the same president every day or every situation, and definitely with different locations of the same president, which means that it's just too hard for our brain to solve without having some kind of heuristics. We talked about difficult, really high stakes, difficult choices, but you also mentioned choices like going to a restaurant and having to decide what to have from the menu. What happens when the decision is not necessarily high stakes, very consequential, but it is enormous? You know, what happens to the human brain when it's confronted by an excess of choice, like when you're in the supermarket and there's 20 different kinds of ham? What do we default to when that happens? Essentially, there are some knowledge on those biases. And typically when there are too many options, we become overwhelmed and we almost move to random or we easily fool. And this is all what all that marketing shows. We kind of look at the entire spectrum and we usually choose the middle. So if we don't know anything at wine, we say, okay, this is the cheapest, this is the most expensive. I guess I'm going to choose the middle. And if we just put more extreme options on the sides, we can actually move the middle. Uh, we typically uh, go to a, what we call choice, choice paralysis, which is many times we just don't know what to do. We default to all kinds of uh, recency event, events. So whatever we chose last time dominates our decision-making right now. So if we had this jam two weeks ago, we're more likely to find it salient this week and just choose it again. We're not really starting from scratch. We are much more biased by other people's opinions in those cases. So if someone comes and is next to us and they chose one jam, the chance of us choosing the same jam that they chose is much higher just because we think that they know something. So all the tools that marketing uh, managers have been using for the last you know, century well coming into play and they all boil down to our brain's difficulty in those choices. I would say that the big difference between big choices is that A, we don't care that much. Any choice you make wouldn't devastate the world and wouldn't you wouldn't remember. You probably will spend a lot of time next to the milk aisle making decisions and thinking that you made the wrong one, but two hours later, you won't even remember what the options were. That's the good news. The other one, we do have some statistics. We have some data. We have memory of our past choices. When it comes to nuclear or getting married or having a kid, typical person has zero to maybe three events in their life where they have had to make such choices, so they don't have a lot to rely on. And that is where the brain is really, really challenged. The internet, of course, presents us with an endless cornucopia of choices. And some of the most successful websites that we know are basically ways of navigating those almost infinite now choices. Do we need to think more carefully about how algorithms do that for us? Do we need to interrogate it more deeply? So the answer is yes. You asked a very, very simple question on this one, because everyone would say that. I, I would say that uh, when you say we, there are always uh, a question as to who is we. So we, each individual, could be both a consumer, in which case they would definitely want the world to be simpler, clear, more transparent. But there are 
there are tensions because the other we is businesses and governments, and they have an interest in what we call architecting our choices. So what you mentioned with regards to website making us do things based on what they want is something that in science we call choice architecture, which is a website essentially directing your choice by making small nudges that navigate you. So for example, the classical ones would be uh, where do you put the uh, opt-in, opt-out choice for you know getting marketing in a mailing list? If you just kept the website and the first thing you have to choose is I want to get marketing material, probably no one would click on it. But if you put it and it's default to opt-in on the last page when you're about to press buy, you're most likely going to join a mailing list. And just this example was used by many governments to make people choose to become organ donors. So, so it's not just at the level of, okay, small choices, whether to buy Captain Crunch or Kellogg cereal, but actually whether you're going to agree to be an organ donor or not, whether you're going to agree to take more refuges or not. We have studies where we take people and we shift their political perspectives by changing the options on a list of many, many items and then telling the votes and telling them you came out as a Republican, even though the person actually came out as a more uh, Democrat. And when we ask them to explain how come they came out as a, a, a Republican, they come up with the answers and they now commit to something that wasn't true that we nudged them into. And now they're actually believing that this was their choice. We have experiments where we essentially overwhelm you uh, with uh, numbers and then essentially have you try to commit to memory information. And because you fail, you yourself just take whatever we present to you as the, this was what you wanted and you just take it. And it goes on and on. You know, the marketing tactics when the numbers are, the price of something is 6.99 rather than seven and people actually forget that it's seven and they somehow think of it as six. All those little things fool our brain all the time. Our brain is not good in dealing with all this information, even though we think we are. And that is why a lot of times we make decisions that are not great for us. How do we manage with political choices? And I don't mean the choices that um, a president might make. I mean the choices that we make as individuals, as voters at election time. Because we are making choices that can be very consequential, but our ability to influence them is is very, very small. So we have to defer in the end to the voice of the collective. We have to say, well, you know, X more people wanted something different, so I'm going to have to shut up and live with this. And I think this is one of the stories of the last decade, isn't it, in, uh, in, in some Western countries in particular, where people have struggled to accept the collective will and have gone on to question the legitimacy of the voting process completely. So it's, it's difficult, isn't it? How do we deal with having cared perhaps so passionately about a voting choice and being maybe a passionate Labour supporter in this country or a Democrat and then having to submit ourselves to other people saying no? So there are two powers that play, come into play here that, that are critical. One is that choices, political choices in many countries right now become an identity choice. Most voters, I would say, in the U.S. don't really know what's the CO2 levels or the exact numbers when it comes to, you know, sea level rise and so on. But they know that they're on this side or that side, and they mostly vote based on that. And it becomes difficult when you have so many variables that you might agree with five, but disagree with four, but you still have to choose one thing. So you either choose Republican or Democrat in the U.S. or, I don't know, like in other countries, it's pretty similar. There are always usually two or three options. You might not agree with all the individual parameters, but you still have to pick a side. And so people default to essentially taking the most salient thing that this side is for and taking everything else that comes with that. And that is one challenge. And they might and often are making decisions that are not good for them. 
at the small scale. They choose this person because he or she is more charismatic and they take with it a lot of things that they actually don't agree with if you ask them individually. That's one problem. The other problem that is a very recent one is that because in some domains, the individual actually has a lot of power, we extrapolate that to democracy. So you can uh, go to Twitter, say something, and it becomes viral, and suddenly you're a leader of a pack that actually changes policy. It's easy to forget that it is one thing to do it at Twitter, but another thing to do it in democracy. You think, okay, I guess I can also say this, and tomorrow the interest rates are going to go up, up or down. And somehow the system doesn't work for individuals to have that much power when it comes to democracy. So this confusion is very difficult for people, especially if they're new to that, if they were born to a world where what they say could any day impact the world, but not every four years when there's an election. It's kind of confusing. so conscious of the way that we make choices and can be overwhelmed by them. Do you have personal strategies for making decisions or limiting choice in your life? Yes. So I'll give you, I'll give you concrete ones for small and for big. And that, that maybe would be useful for the audience kind of to take home because that's a concrete kind of outcome. So here is the fun small one, and then I'll give you the fun big ones. So on the small ones, most of life is full of small choices that don't really matter. If you go to the restaurant and you order the salmon, out of the three options that they gave you, and they give you the steak, there's a chance that you won't even notice that you didn't get what you want if you were really immersed in conversation. And if you take the steak and eat it, you probably will not remember tomorrow that you chose the salmon, and definitely not within a year. And life is full of those salmon steak choices. Most of choices, whether to go this way or that way to the, to the job or whether to, you know, go to this movie or that movie, they feel critical in the moment, but they're not. And if you accept that, and you also accept the fact that your brain is not great in making those choices, you can start finding strategies to do them without the regret, which is the thing that is mostly worrying us when we're about to make the choices. What happens if I make the wrong one and I regret? What I do is I have a collection of friends that I spend a lot of time picking. That was a big choice to collect the friends. And then among the friends, we basically default to one person making choice for the collective every time. So if you go to a movie, Today, Jonathan chooses the movie for everyone. And sometimes we're going to end up watching a movie that we hate. It will happen. But most times we don't remember that. And also it doesn't really matter because those small choices. And it's true for choices when it comes to restaurants. It's true for choices when it comes to what to do with your leisure and your free time. It's true for what to buy uh, when you need to buy small products to kind of, you know, stapler and so on. I was the kind of guy who could spend two hours on Amazon comparing staplers before I choose one, this saved me a lot of effort. And that's true for most choices in life. I would say that a large majority of our choices are small. So we cover that. When I sometimes want to be exploratory, I would say I actually go to the waiter in a restaurant and I tell them, give me the top three that you prefer. And I choose number two with some heuristic that I made up that the first one might be the one that's top of mind. The second one is the one that he actually has to think about and come up with. So that's, that's one approach that I have that works for me. We covered small ones, big ones. Most people that listen to us right now will make a few big ones. They will choose to buy a house for a lot of money. They will choose who to marry. They will choose when to have a kid or two or three. And they might choose to change career. Those choices are big. Those I wouldn't recommend asking Jonathan to make for us and then marry whoever they say. Those require effort. And we have tactics on how to help our brain make those better. So I'll give you a few. And those are the ones we actually spend time recommending to the military and to the senior leaders in the government when it comes to nuclear. For example, there is one thing that has to do with the preparation. Rehearsing those choices occasionally is actually good for our brain. If you 
today decide that you're going to just practice. How will you choose your husband or wife? You're a single 20-year-old kid and you actually practice that. You will actually learn about your brain. And then when in five years, 10 years, 15 years, you will have to come to make a choice, you will have a little bit more training. And the brain really kind of thrives on training, training for that. So playing the game, uh, simulation with yourself, with your friends, this is one thing. There's something that uh, uh, people love to do in academia, which is called pre-mortem. You essentially take the uh, situation and assume it failed. So you say, assuming I'm divorcing today, the woman I thought I'm going to marry and be with for the rest of my life. Now I'm doing a pre-mortem, which is I'm trying to analyze backwards. It's all in your mind, but it's, it's a really great exercise. What led to this failure? So, so you say it failed. We were attacked by missiles and we're destroyed and our resources are gone. What signs have we missed before? What it, so you kind of played the game of it was a bad outcome. Let's see how we got here. And then you learn what are the signs right now. Another thing, and I'm going to give you maybe one or two more and then I'm stop because we have so many that I don't want to overwhelm everyone. Another one that is really useful with big choices, especially if you're already uh, in one, is to ask the question right now, knowing what I know, if I wasn't in this situation, would I choose it myself? So you're uh, in a job and you're debating whether to take another one or, or not and so on. And you say, okay, imagine that I don't have this job. I'm not, I'm not in this golden cage where I'm uh, finding it hard to live. Imagine I didn't have this job and I was in a situation where I have those two options and I'm unemployed right now and I have to choose whether to start this job or not. Would I still choose this? Would I? And this is a good exercise that kind of strips a little bit the weight of, well, I'm already in a way in a sunk cost game. I've already invested in this one too much that it's hard to do. You can do it with your marriage. If I knew everything right now, would I propose to him today? That would be a, a game to play with yourself. And then I would say that the last one, and again, I promise you I have so many more that I'm uh, censoring myself to choosing the kind of ones that I think would be useful for the audience, is really spend time on how you uh, present the options to yourself. For that, the best advice is to have another person. So when you play the game alone, you will put the ones that you really prefer as most salient. Yeah, I'm pregnant and it's. they say that it's, drinking is not good, but... I once read an article that says that actually one glass a day is great. So I'm going to uh, do that. This will be your brain playing the same tricks that you want to be had uh, on you. If you do it with someone else, it's a little bit harder. So we tell, for instance, couples that to make decisions, uh, the financial, it's better if they both come to the bank. It actually helps. The two of them have a collective mind that's usually better than any individual one. With regards to nuclear, we immediately suggested to move from one man show to multiple brains. And that actually already makes a big difference. And I think that this is true for most of us. Having another person be our sounding board is helpful, even if we're going to ignore that and just find ways to find, to explain to ourselves why they're better, why they're not good and we're better. It's still useful to have them. Moran, that was fascinating. Thank you so much for talking to us. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed today's bunker, then you can support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katya Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>